Health in America is closely tied to where we live. Across a wide array of outcomes, we often see the same geographic patterns, with higher rates of preventable health conditions concentrated in high poverty neighborhoods and communities. And high poverty communities are much more likely to be home to a higher proportion of Americans of color than white Americans. The segregation of communities in America is not a result, not a result of chance but rather the direct result of business practices and government housing policy that date back to almost a century ago. One practice that laid the groundwork for residential segregation is redlining. Redlining is a term describing the practice of denying services such as home loans or insurance to black and brown Americans by characterizing the communities that they lived in as too risky. The practice gets its name from maps in which certain neighborhoods were literally outlined in red to indicate they were high risk for mortgage lenders. The original redlining maps were produced in the 1930s by the Federal Housing Administration. Though redlining was legally banned in the 1968 Fair Housing Act, these housing policies have had lasting effects on American society and our major metropolitan areas remain largely segregated. There are also signs that similar, though more veiled practices continue to this day. Aside from the resulting concentration of poverty and poor health, redlining and other practices have played a huge role in the wealth gap between black and white Americans. While black American incomes are on average about 60% of average white incomes, black wealth is astonishingly only 5% of white wealth. This staggering difference is due almost solely to black families gaining almost none of the equity appreciation that white Americans gain on their homes over almost a hundred years. Like many of the injustices in our country's history, redlining and associated practices are an open secret that remain largely ignored in modern discussions of the causes of disparities in wealth and health. These practices are largely responsible for why so many black Americans live in segregated neighborhoods that lack stable housing, job, opportun job opportunities, healthy food, and other resources. Awareness of the decades-old policies and practices may in fact help to explain why Black Americans face higher rates of infection and more severe outcomes during the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, we're going to discuss residential segregation and its lasting effect on health disparities in America. I'm your host, Brian James, Associate Professor at Rush University Medical Center, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from researchers who are deeply involved with this work. Today, I'm joined by a fellow member of the SER Scientific Dissemination Committee, Ghassan Hamra, Assistant Professor in Epidemiology and Environmental Health and Engineering at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Hi, Ghassan. Hi, Brian, how's it going? Um, it's doing, going okay. How, and today, we are also joined by an expert on the topic of residential segregation and health, Sherelle Barber. Ghassan, could you please introduce Sherelle? Absolutely. So Dr. Sherelle Barber is an assistant professor in epidemiology and biostatistics at the Drexel University Dornsife School of Public Health, where we actually first met. Um, Sherelle's expertise is in racial, racial residential segregation and health inequities. And Sherelle is the inaugural director of the Ubuntu Center on Racism, Global Movements, and Population Health Equity. Thanks so much for joining us today, Sherelle. Really excited to be on. Thanks so much for that introduction, Ghassan. Awesome. Thank you both for being here. 
Um, so to start this discussion off, Sherelle, I'm going to ask you to give us a little bit more about the context of residential segregation in America. So I described redlining in the intro, but I know this history remains largely unknown to the average American. Could you tell us more about the history of residential segregation? Absolutely. So um, it's a big, it's a large, it's a long one. Yeah, a lot, that's a lot. That's a, a tall, that's a big question. Feel, but what I want to just say is that, you know, um, residential segregation literally is one of the most persistent hallmarks of um, American um, urban, uh, urban areas in America. Mm -hmm. um, has been most persistent among Black Americans in this country. Mm -hmm. um, residential segregation is seen across uh, major cities in this country, wherever you go, whether it is in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where I live now, or Jackson, Mississippi. And um, it really is one of those hallmarks that you know, characterize cities. But as you suggested in your introduction, most people think it is by accident or it's mm -hmm personal interpersonal prejudice or um, um, or you know just choices that people make yeah. as opposed to entrenched racist policies that date back as you mentioned decades right mm -hmm. so that's one thing that I'd like to say and then the second um, because this is an epi podcast we have seen persistent and consistent associations with segregation and a number of health outcomes that really help us to understand the racial inequities that we see in this country. Dr. Mm -hmm. Williams in 2001, which is in a paper called Residential Segregation, a Fundamental Cause of Health Disparities, um, again, says it just like that, that it is fundamental to our understanding of these inequities. Um, and by not understanding it and not understanding the legacy and history, we actually do a disservice to the work of health equity research. So just want to put that. But when you I think back to redlining, um, many people know about, uh, or now I think in this last year, coming more aware, right, that the federal government really um, played a hand, had a hand in kind of really creating the segregation that we see in our country. And so one of the books, and I'll refer to uh, several books throughout this podcast, but one of the books that I think is important for folks to read is The Color of Law. Um, and um, by, um, gosh, his name is Exactly. Rothstein, is that right? Yeah, The Color of Law. Where he talks about redlining, but he talks about some other policies at the federal, uh, state, and local level that helped to perpetuate segregation. And what redlining really did was, um, so you had the Federal Housing Administration, um, which developed the Homeowners Loan Corporation um, to begin to manage home mortgages and insurance that would underwrite mortgages in this country in a time where most people didn't own homes. And it was, you know, in the middle and, and right after the Great Depression, right? So it was a way to really jumpstart home ownership in this in the United States. But um, these maps were created, right, uh, to direct banks and the real estate market into saying, where should we insure home mortgages? And where should, you know, so where should we invest really um, in, in, in home mortgages? And in what uh, neighborhoods are, should we stay away from or are, or are, are these neighborhoods are too risky, right? Uh, to invest or to insure home mortgages, right? And the neighborhoods that were chosen were neighborhoods that were occupied by um, Black Americans, um, they were poor neighborhoods. They were sometimes neighborhoods that were, um, for example, um, hazardous because of the environmental conditions. 
Um, and I will also say that it was not always just Black Americans. Other uh, racial groups at the time that were seen as uh, like immigrant populations, et cetera, uh, those uh, neighborhoods were also redlined, right? But for Black Americans, it was, you know, it was definitely one of those places. And these, these neighborhoods were described as risky or hazardous just because Black Americans occupied those spaces, right? Mm -hmm. So this fed into, um, you know, a lot of the, the thinking around the time of the inferiority of Black Americans, the racist ideologies around Black Americans, really white supremacy showing up in the ways in which it discriminated against Black Americans. And what I say, and a lot of my research and my colleagues say that segregation really is one of the most visible manifestations of structural racism. It is literally how racism has gotten embedded into the brick and mortar and the social fabric of our country. Um, and again, these you know things like redlining, things like restrictive covenants, where literally there were um, covenants made um, that that said that um, individuals living in a home couldn't sell to Black Americans um, or resell to Black Americans or rent to Black Americans, right? literally restricting the residential mobility of Black Americans. Um, and then also, and another thing that helped to, to kind of drive this when public housing was created, a lot of that public housing was segregated public housing. And so again, so you have the redlining maps that per, kind of set the stage for segregation. You have these policies that of restrictive covenants that literally restricted people from selling to Black Americans. You have the um, emergence of, of, of public housing during the 1930s that, again, was by design segregated. And then in the 1940s, what you get is the GI Bill, right, where you have millions of folks coming home from World War II. There are incentives for veterans to buy homes but Black Americans were left out of that, that those, those incentives, right? Literally over a million Black um, uh, men, uh, Americans who um, had fought in World War II uh, were denied housing, you know, in these new developments uh, that were being created by the federal government, right? So this is where you see literal policies, literal practices, literal denial of Black Americans from one of the fundamental drivers, as you mentioned, of wealth in this country. And it wasn't by accident. It was by design. And that sets the stage for decades of disinvestment in these communities uh, that is um, persistent to this day. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that, that was wonderful. Um, yeah, just so much to say about it. I mean, I, you know, what always strikes me is just just how almost insidious it is, or how much, the self-fulfilling prophecy of labeling an area as risky simply right. because, um, you know, a certain group of people live there and then right. saying, and then, you know, however many years, decades later, we, we're all asking the question, why, why is there so much poverty in that area of that group? Exactly. Man, no wonder, of course it was risky. Who's gonna, who's gonna, you know, ensure that uh, group of people when they have no money, you know, but it's like, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Exactly. And then one more point I'll make, Brian, is that it was, you know, this, you know, to the detriment of Black Americans, but, but white Americans, you know, benefited Absolutely. and were privileged because of it. So home ownership for white Americans was literally subsidized 
by the federal government in a way that Black Americans, uh, were, home ownership was not. And that's where it gets even more insidious. I'll bring in a definition of racism by Dr. Kamar Jones, phenomenal epidemiologist out of you know, Hopkins and has just led this work on racism for so many years. She describes it as a system that disadvantages um, certain groups and population, but also advantages other groups and populations. And then the last thing she says is that it saps the strength of the entire society through the waste of human resources. So segregation is literally one of those things where we see it very clearly at disadvantaging Black Americans um, and other marginalized racial groups. But again, advantage, you know, having this advantage, this undue, unearned privilege and advantage for white Americans. And that's why I, again, see it as such a driver of kind of uh, racism and, and inequities um, within this country because of that disconnect that was literally, again, fueled uh, by government policies. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. I think. Uh, Immediately, I, it makes me think of a, a, a specific follow-up question, which is that one of the things that strikes me is even since those policies have been supposedly addressed with uh, new laws such as the Fair Housing Act, right. um, it seems like we still can't get around it. That right. the the, the the health consequences and all of the negative aspects of residential segregation persist to this day, one way or another. And so mm -hmm. I was interested to know what you think about what kind of, or at least a sense of what kind of policies has the government tried to enact over the decades and why have they all fallen flat? That's a great mm. question. Um, so you mentioned kind of, you mentioned 1960 and I wanna talk, I'll dig a little bit into that because I, I, I actually, um, in lectures that I give and I, in the course that I teach, I teach a class on urban inequality and health at Drexel. Um, and I, I, I really mark um, and, and talk about 1968 and the Fair Housing Act of 1968 as something that is um, instrumental um, and was brought about because of kind of the broad scale social movements happening at that time, the civil rights movement. Um, but I also very intentionally marked the date that it was what it, it, it actually passed. So April the 11th, 1968, which happened to be one week after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., right? So wow. it literally passed and this, you know, anti-discriminatory um, law passed in the wake of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. And I sometimes wonder whether or not if you know, we would have had that advancement. And it, it kind of, when you juxtapose it to what's happening now in the wake of what happened with George Floyd last year and all these now, everyone's talking about these policies that need to get passed you know, to push things forward. I just remind people that a lot of the civil rights and anti-racism um, and anti-discrimination um, advancement in this country have unfortunately come at, come at a high price and literally have been paid for in blood, right? So I, I just want to mark that, right? So, but then some, you know, some argue that even the Fair Housing Act didn't have, didn't have much enforcement teeth, right? right. That, you know, there was this language around not being able to discriminate based on race and other things, but that the enforcement of that was very weak. Um, and so you still get the perpetuation of some of these practices, although not explicitly, right, um, or, you know, explicitly say the denial of African-Americans, but in other ways do that, you know, continue to 
for example, we see, you know, have studies that show that um, mortgage lending, there's still a, an inequity in mortgage lending for Black Americans, right? Despite income, despite credit score, you know, um, there was a recent report about a couple of years ago that came out about Philadelphia that talked about those discrepancies um, and showed um, some of the persistence of redlining here, even in Philadelphia, and how you know, mortgage loans um, are given at a rate much lower than in other communities, right? And so again, the, you know, <laughs> the way racism operates, unfortunately, in this country is that it, it, it shapeshifts and it finds a way around these policies to continue to, you know, be perpetuated um, in this uh, country. Uh, another book that I'm also reading is called Race for Profit, which is a, a, a book um, by um, Dr. Um, Yamada, uh, Kianga Yamada Taylor um, out of Princeton. Um, and it's really powerful because she talks about this, um, you know, a lot about, you know, pat, you know, post-1968, you have all these, you know, um, urban renewal, you know, well, not urban renewal, some of that happened in the 40s, but you have these policies to kind of address the blight in urban communities. Um, and, you know, those, you know, those policies, the investment you know, were um, just not enough to overcome, again, the decades of disinvestment. And then again, there was still, you know, racism in, embedded in how those, you know, resources got distributed, or there was, you know, some resources for a short period of time, and then, you know, no, you know, didn't have the political will to, you know, invest the real, you know, number of resources that need to be invested in those communities. So you just get this kind of perpetuation of disinvestment over many, many, decades. We now have, you know, the promised neighborhoods and promised zones and, you know, the Harlem children's of all these things have been policies to try to address these, you know, um, uh, to address the disinvestment and address the conditions of neighborhoods. Um, however, I think that the market forces um, are so much more powerful um, incentive, right, to kind of keep the devaluation of Black neighborhoods, because it's actually profitable to keep segregate, you know, um, our housing market segregated. It's actually profitable. And I think that those market forces, you know, outweigh, you know, the political will we've been able to kind of galvanize to actually address the issues in our city. So it's complicated, but again, um, the dollar and profits seem to, you know, be what is valued over people. Um, and unfortunately, that's a that's a sad reality that we're seeing. The last thing I'll say is that. The other piece of this is some, you know, when we do see things like investment um, happening in cities, it often comes at a price and that's displacement, right? And, you know, we get this investment or infusion of funds, um, but the communities that will benefit the most from that infusion are pushed out and then we get gentrification, right? So like, it's like this vicious cycle of literally capitalism driving kind of these inequities in a way uh, that, um, again, um, harms uh, Black Americans and other marginalized racial groups who've been uh, um, born, the, born the, really born the burden of segregation in this country and the, and the conditions uh, that that brings about and then ultimately the health outcomes that we see. Yeah, I mean, it almost seems like the, the laws set up the structure and then and then it was just like get out of the way make it illegal but let the market do its thing from the here on exactly out, right? and again racism is and again i'll say it again racism is profitable in this way right and like 
and um and I mean I don't yeah so again I'm I'm um it's it's racism and it's the, these market drivers this kind of vicious exploitive capitalism that I think coupled together continue to maintain these segregated patterns in our urban areas because I I mean I, I just don't get it I don't get like how okay we know what the problems are um, we know what it costs even to fix them. Um, but we always come up short. And again, I think that that market, those market drivers are what make it come up short. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's worth pointing out that even in the beginning with redlining, it was still, um, so, I mean, you know, you talked about Philadelphia and and its history where you live, Mm -hmm. and I live in Chicago, where I would say, you know, residential segregation was born, right? I mean, redlining Mm -hmm. and segregation was literally born into Chicago. And, um, you know, it seems ironic, but, you know, people... Black Americans were fleeing the South to go to the North and had exactly. flooding into Chicago during the Great Migration um, mm-hmm. because they were more free there. But when they got yeah. there, you know, there were not laws that were just blatantly discriminating again against them. But instead, mm-hmm. they had these more, um, you know, disguise. So even redlining, as I was going to say, they weren't redlining it and saying, uh, you know, blatantly, this is this is where black people live. They were saying they're high risk neighborhoods, mm-hmm. right? Well, mm-hmm. what is the high risk based on? Well, you know, it's a bunch of things, but really, it yeah. was all it was just based on on the people who were living there. So it, it's almost like um, you can move the goalposts, right? So you, you're doing something, mm-hmm. quote unquote, within the law. Mm-hmm. but it's mm-hmm. still having the same effect. And then, you know, even that was, was recognized in the 60s as being just too blatantly uh, mm-hmm. racist. So then we Absolutely. had the Fair Housing Act. But as you say, um, you know, the structure was put in place. I mean, the infrastructure mm-hmm. was there. We already had this gap over decades that had mm-hmm. built up in a wealth uh, disparity. And so it just played out where now you can say, well, now let people move wherever they want to lo- move. Exactly. And ain't no one going to be moving across the boundaries that were already set, right? Yeah, and and or you create, so you set up the conditions for, and um, when you think about mortgages and what that does to communities in terms of building wealth, not just for individuals, but whole communities, so then you 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 set up this you know this system where you've got segregation. Uh, then for decades you let these neighborhoods decline. Yes. Neighborhoods then get a, a bad rap, if you will. Yeah. They're like, oh, these black, and then you associate poor you know um, conditions of neighborhoods with black race, and it perpetuates this myth that like somehow we're inferior, right? And so that's what that was part of it too. It's like, oh, these hazardous neighborhoods or these bad neighborhoods with you know, high rates of crime. So you get, so then you don't have to necessarily always talk about race. You talk about the conditions, but they're used interchangeably, right? Exactly. It's this really harmful narrative that gets created that, you know, somehow that feeds into, again, the racist narrative of Black Americans being inferior or, um, uh, and otherwise, right? So it's just this like vicious cycle of our racist ideologies feeding into kind of, you know, how we treat certain populations, certain neighborhoods, invest where we choose not to invest. Then then you don't invest and then you say, see, I told you these bad, you know, these people in these neighborhoods create this. And that's not what it is. The other thing, the last thing I'll say is that even, you know, some of the myth around, well, if black people move into our neighborhoods, the best of the neighborhoods will go down. I was about to say. So that. again, so you, you again, all of these racist ideologies getting perpetuated within the policies 
um, that are both tied to race and racism, but also capitalism, right? Because there's literally this like devaluing of whole communities um, that is, you know, tied, you know, to to race to race, right? And so and that is just wrong. It's just a myth, right? Yeah. Um, and so black, and then you know, so then the residential possibilities of Black Americans has been limited in that way. And again, it, it plays out across every major city in this country. We see it. Um, uh, one thing I'll say is that you know, I, I know you all. Um, we talked earlier about kind of this is work that I've done, but my it was my kind of like observations, right? Literally, I go to Philadelphia, same thing. Jackson, Mississippi, Mobile, Alabama, right out North Carolina. North Carolina is where I'm from. You're like, wait a minute, how is this pattern the same everywhere? I yeah. go? And it's like, this can't just be like preference or you know choice, right? There has to be something underlying it. And that something underlying is what we have to understand if we're actually gonna address it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm, gl I'm glad you brought up what I was going to bring up, which to use an epi term, uh, we almost had a natural experiment, you know, that disproved th that that the riskiness, the quote unquote riskiness is due to anything other than racial makeup in, mm -hmm. in the white flight that happened in the 60s mm -hmm. and 70s. Right. You know, mm -hmm. um, you know, supposedly if you're going to say this neighborhood just happens to be risky and this neighborhood doesn't. Well, it's the exact same neighborhood but the black residents move in and the white residents move out. And then that becomes a risky neighborhood. So exactly. I, there was only one thing that we have the counterfactual here, you know, like exactly. we, I mean, we know yeah. what changed. Right, and, exactly. And look what happened. In yeah, office. in Philadelphia. Um, so the Philadelphia Negro is another reference point for me. Again, this was pre-redlining. Uh, du Bois, W.B. Du Bois wrote this in the, at the turn of the 20th century. It was released in 1899 you know, groundbreaking social uh, sociology study. But I, again, I think he's the grandfather of social epidemiology in so many ways. Um, but, you know, the, the area in, in Philadelphia that used to be predominantly occupied by Black Americans was in old what's now Old City in South Philly, right? Um, that shifted and changed once, you know, there's, there was an interest in that part of the city. There was investment in that part of the city. Those residents, Black residents were moved out. Now, Old City in that area is a more affluent area, right, right. Um, in Philadelphia, right? So, again, we, we see it. The, sh the shift happens, um, and um, then it becomes, then, you know, the, the profile, of, when the profile of the neighborhood changes, that's when, you know, things change. And that profile tends to be the racial composition, the racial makeup of, of those cities, so yep. in those communities. Yeah, so it, it's a... Uh... So it, it, you kind of address this, but it sounds like it sounds like basically you got into this area just more or less through a, through one observation and another over the course of your life that yeah. this is something that needed to be addressed. And it reminds me, it reminds me a lot of um, I just wanted to say it's kind of it's it, it seems like a family a family affair for you because I know your your father's work in North Carolina addressing so many so many major issues like this is uh is is some of the best work out there and I, I always i always think about that which happened actually literally about a month after we left north carolina i started hearing about moral mondays and i was like what is moral mondays and i was like Absolutely. wow this is a real thing yeah and tell yeah. us about yeah. that i don't know about this tell tell us about it oh uh, uh Gassan, do you want to chime in or 
It's your dad. It's your story. Tell us no, about your yeah. Yeah, about yeah, yeah. No. So, so what I'll say, I'll back up. I'll back into my story, and then I'll come come back yeah. around for a month. It's because it it actually does feed into you know, how I'm thinking about the next what we need moving forward. So, um, I started my formal public health um, journey, I guess, at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, and part of my work, I was really um, interested in community work and understanding kind of community drivers of racial inequities, not only what drives, you know, the harmful things that drive, but also the power of communities to really bring about change. Um, and so um, was a paired with two Black women um, activists, community organizers in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. Um, uh, Mary, um, Miss Mary is one of the women I would call, and then Naima Muhammad, who's an environmental social justice activist, just powerful Black woman who's been on the front lines of the, this work. So anyways, but I was a, you know, 22-year-old, like, you know, naive, you know, wanting to just understand health inequities, uh, racial health inequities very specifically in the South. Um, but probably, you know, didn't know much, much, right? And so, but one of the things that they did as a part of this nine-month experience I had with them was to take me along with one of the local pastors in Rocky Mount to a set of train tracks. And I remember them describing that set of train tracks as the social, political, economic, and racial divide in the city. Literally, you cross one side of the train tracks, the schools, you have jobs, you have the amenities that, you know, where people thrive. And then on the other, literal other side of the train tracks, it's t night and day, right? And I'm just like, okay, so this is Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, then had an experience in Mobile, Alabama, same thing. In this case, it was a highway that kind of went over, you know, the, the, the Black neighborhood, you kind of bypass it really, right? Um, but sometimes it, they go straight through right? or straight through. Yeah. And that was by design too, right? Mm -hmm. That was by design as well. And then Jackson, Mississippi, one of the landmarks there is uh, Freedom Corner, the intersection of Martin Luther King and Megra Evers. And um, again, this is in the black neighborhood. And again, you see the same kinds of, you know, poor housing, the resources aren't there, et cetera. So again, continue to kind of, um, try to understand like, well, what's, what is, why, why is this the case? And the kind of my journey has been to unpeel and then, you know, kind of go back and think about, so how did we get here in, you know, two, in the two thousands, what are the things that got us here? Right. Um, but I say all that to say that, again, you see these patterns all across the country, but you also recognize, and one of the things I've been benefited by is being aligned and connected within these communities to really powerful people who have, they've not sat idly by while these things have happened. They've been actively engaging uh, to change these conditions you know, within their communities. They've been advocating for, uh, for good housing, advocating for good jobs, advocating against environmental racism issues, right? So there's been this real power um, of communities and it hasn't been because of the lack of power on community side, it's been the lack of will by those yeah. people power. Right. And so power becomes a really important part of the analysis that I think is even missing um, as we're thinking about, OK, so we see segregation, um, we see the harm that it causes, um, but what do we do to change it? And it's because people in power haven't done the, you know, made the policies and the kinds of investments necessary to change these conditions. Mm -hmm. 
I believe that if you can make, if we can create segregation, if we can create this level of poverty and inequity, then we, we can recreate it and come up with ways and solutions for these things. This, this shouldn't be, it shouldn't be in Philadelphia that we have a 20 year, upwards of a 20 year life expectancy difference between neighborhoods in North Philly and neighborhoods in Center City. That just shouldn't be 20 years within two or three miles of each other, right? But it is, and it's persistent, and this is not, you know, this is the case. So to come back to Gassan's kind of this, this idea of Moral Mondays, you know, really comes out of, it, it, it actually came out of um, some of the harmful legislation that was coming out um, against voting rights um, in, in North Carolina, but has expanded now in, uh, to what's now called the Poor People's Campaign, um, which really addresses the interlocking injustices of racism, systemic poverty, ecological devastation, and how our war economy and the over-militarization of our, you know, of our economy literally has led to some of these inequities as well, has fueled the, you know, this idea of a scarcity model that we don't have enough when we've just put so much money into wars and, and destruction, right? We don't invest in life, right? And so, but again, that movement is a grassroots movement that really says that the power is within those who are most directly impacted by these injustices. And these are the people that we need to be listening to, one, to hear what the harm of things like segregation of these racist policies, of policies against poverty, but also they're also embedded with the solutions and the power to overcome, you know, these systems and structures. And the Poor People's Campaign actually dates back to 1968. It was something that Martin Luther King was beginning to put in place before he was assassinated, really bringing together uh, individuals across lines of difference. Um, so um, poor whites and poor blacks and Hispanics and all these groups to say, we need to stand up against these injustices that have created the conditions that cause so much harm, that limit life, that limit communities from thriving, right? And so that's a part of my journey. And as a social epidemiologist, you know, kind of see one that you have to have the proper diagnosis of the problem, right? So understanding the thing, the policies, the redlining, the restrictive covenants, you know, the, the, the policies over decades that have led to disinvestment, but also never forgetting the power of people and social movements and really being able to push against these, you know, harmful policies to have something better. And I think we're in that kind of moment now with COVID, right? Yeah. And, Black folks, um, his, uh, his Latinx individuals, they were the, have, uh, indigenous folks have been the ones most harmed because of these historical legacies of racism and, and, and otherwise. Um, but we're in a moment, are, are we gonna just, you know, just stay here and, and just kind of continue to allow these conditions to be perpetuated? Or are we gonna actually do something about it? And the do something about it will require the good science, the evidence, the um, proper diagnosis of the problems, the understanding of the policies that got us here, and think about what are the things that we need to do to undo those policies, and what power do we need to build to, un, you know, to challenge the systems and the structures that perpetuate these policies. Because again, we've moved forward in this country when people <laughs> have pushed this country forward. Yep. I think that's what we still need um, as it relates to things like segregation in our urban cities, but other things related to other injustices, living wages, et cetera. So um, yeah. I know a lot and it kind of, yeah. 
<laughs> well, yeah, and um, you didn't tell it's us. It's a part uh, of the journey. It's definitely part of the journey. Well, that was fantastic, but I still don't know how your dad comes into it. <laughs> oh, well, he leads on this all. Oh, <laughs> yeah, so okay. This, uh, yeah, so Reverend uh, William Barber, he ha- happens to lead, uh, co-lead the Poor People's Campaign, led the Mondays in North Carolina when he was the president of NAACP. Um, and so that, you know, I am a product, a proud product of that. I have four other siblings and we all kind of try in our own way to kind of carry on that legacy. But the name Fantastic. William Barber uh, is um, um, a name that, you know, a lot of I-, I am proud of and a lot of folks really see as, you know, having some of the clarity around what we need to do when faced with these injustices, when faced with this racist history, this classist history um, in our country, how we need to galvanize and move us forward. Got it. And before we move forward, what's Moral Monday though? I still don't now, know. Moral <laughs> Monday was literally, pro. they were direct action protests where um, clergy, everyday folks got arrested at the General Assembly in North Carolina because they were fed up with the kinds of policies that the state was putting forth uh, first around voting, but um, failing to expand Medicaid, you know, all these different policies that again, harm people. And I think over a thousand people got arrested in a, like a one year span and protesting these things. um, We're talking in the sixties, right? This is not the sixties. No, you're talking about current. This is 2013. That's, there you <laughs> yeah. go. Okay. So set the stage. We're talking about modern day. So sorry. I, I mean, if we went a roundabout way, but yeah. 2013, but again, recognizing it's not, none of this is by accident. It's design. It's people making decisions. It's yep. policymakers. It's the local, state, federal, all colluding to perpetuate these. Um, yeah. And and similarly, the you know the segregation that we see in this country. So it all fits together. It all kind of, sure. you kind of think about it from this broader perspective of their decision makers over time who just continue to say no to so much that would provide the conditions in which individuals and communities could thrive. And if we and we have to focus on policy. We don't do that enough in public health. I don't think. Yes, thank you. Policies. Absolutely that have perpetuated, again, these injustices. And it's not just, oh, this is just how it has to, you know, this is how we've made it and we can unmake it. Yeah, I, I'm glad you said that. One of the questions I was going to ask you is the same question. I, I, got, I had the chance to ask Ibram Kendi um, this question when he was the plenary speaker at the SCR conference, I think two conferences ago, it was virtual. So I just mm-hmm. asked him in the chat, but I still got the answer. I knew what the answer would be, but I just wanted to hear what he had to say about it. You know, mm-hmm. do, should we as epidemiologists be studying, should we be trained in policy and in evaluation of policy if we're really going to talk about the, like you used the term fundamental cause in the beginning. Mm-hmm. If you ignore the policy that put in place why we have residential segregation and concentration of poverty to mm-hmm. this day, then are you ever going to, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, identifying causes, which is the whole mm-hmm. point of, mm-hmm. of epidemiology. If you're, exactly. if, you're, if you're completely oblivious to how policy works, how are you identifying that cause of that health disparity? So what, what's your take yeah. On, on this? Yeah, absolutely. We have to understand policies. Again, policy, there are, I mean, we have policies that, um, you but know, we're not trained to in epidemiology. We're class, not, right? and we're not, we're not trained to, we're, <laughs> unfortunately, sometimes we're very individualistic. Does this thing, this yeah. one exposure, right. you know, is that associated with this 
single outcome. And the world isn't that simple. It's very complex. So I would argue, one, we need to understand policies. We need to understand processes. And we need to understand the politics of it as well, right? Because those, so the policy is like, you know, that what's on the books and everything, but how do we get those policies through and who, what are, you know, what are the politics around it? And then how do those policies, you know, kind of, you know, become a part of the processes that, you know, create the conditions, right? So we're not, we're really, we have been limited in the way we see and view the world. And I do think that, you know, epidemiologists need to um, be more interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary, really transdisciplinary, um, bringing in expertise from other disciplines to help us, you know, understand these complex issues. Um, it's one of the reasons I read like a, um, a, you know, work like The Color of Law or Race for Profit by sociologists and, you know, policy folks, because that broadens my understanding of how, you know, what we're seeing and how this has been influencing health inequities. Um, we can be a little blinded, you know, have blinders on and kind of just focus on the fancy methods and focus on, you know, um, you know, running the fancy models, but we don't have this broader understanding. We don't bring the necessary theories to bear and the understanding of history, you know, to really help us think about why we're seeing the things we do. And I think all of that is necessary um, if we're going to really understand the causes of the causes of the causes, right? Totally, totally. totally. What we're trying to do in epidemiology. Yes. Yeah. It reminds me, it, it, this, this, this reminds me very clearly of, uh, I think, an underappreciated commentary in the journal, the American Journal of Epidemiology by Carl Shai called The Failure of Academic Epidemiology, which is one mm -hmm. of my favorite reads. And it is focused on the fact that epidemiologists are spending a lot of time on risk factor based work when, and that is in fact a distraction from addressing real public health yes. challenges by focusing on social structures and, and social issues. And I think about it when people say something. So I, an example that comes to mind is, so a fundamental issue is residential segregation period mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. health, but people will, will look at, other aspects of, of neighborhoods that are fundamentally segregated and, and don't have access to resources and try to pinpoint individual things about it. And exactly. that's exactly, I think that's just, you know, it's just a distraction from the real issue. Right. Well, the, it, the irony. It, well, that was, yeah, no. And that's actually one of the things that I was seeing, like, so we have, and I think it's, a, it's been a, a great addition to the field, um, like the kind of neighborhoods research but I mean, I think it's a, it's, it is, it helped to put health in context, which we were not doing 20 years ago. Right. So, but what it, what some of the, what some of that literature missed is like, we try to say, okay, is it, is it food stores? And then we'll yes. make the food stores. Right. X directly causes yeah. Y. Yeah. As, and then it's just like the food store, but there's a, there is food. There's a reason the food stores are distributed the way they are, right? Exactly. Exactly. And segregation and the disinvestment that has happened because of segregation helps us understand that. So you can't just isolate food stores as the one thing. Cause then what we then did was say, okay, so if food stores is it, then what we'll do is put food stores in neighborhoods and then that'll solve the obesity epidemic, right? Yeah. 
the yeah. food desert problem. Yes. And then it was just like, well, that actually may lead to another, you know, to gentrification because when a whole food shows up in a, a right. neighborhood, um, that's a healthy food source, but it's not for the people, the residents necessarily who, you know, yeah. live there and kind of, you know, and totally. so, and it was just, but Gassan, to your point, we, we kind of risk factor and then outcome. And then we then hone in on that one quote unquote risk factor, even if it's a neighborhood risk factor, to, to think that that will be the silver bullet to solve the problems and we have yeah. it, right? And so again, that's what drove me to say, we've got to step back to say, wait, how does segregation, how does disinvestment, how does dispossession even play into why we don't have food store, you know, healthy food stores or why the market is set up the way it is um, along with so many other businesses, right? Within the communities like it's a much bigger and deeper picture which lends itself to more like um, uh, um, systems thinking system science yes um, where we can think about how these things are connected but again if we're trying to say you know just look at the linear and yes. just a to b to c that doesn't always get us there right right and, and the irony is that you know I think some of the reasons that people in epidemiology um, don't like studying things like racism and poverty is because it's linked to so many outcomes that, mm -hmm. that, that it's almost looked down upon. Well, there's no direct effect of that, of X to Y, because it's also <laughs> cause of Y1 and Y2 and Y3 and Y4. And, and then, you know, shout out. That's to the Tom. whole point. That's the whole point. My, <laughs> so shout out to my advisor at back when I was at Hopkins, Tom Glass. I mean, he was, he really drove home the point to me that he called them, you know, levers, levers mm -hmm. of health rather than risk factors, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so if you pull this lever, you're going to change all of these downstream health effects, right? Mm -hmm. So shouldn't that be what we're focusing on? But no, because we're so wed to this, um, you know, linear counterfactual model mm -hmm. of, you know, basing everything on a drug trial, right? You know, you give them this mm -hmm. intervention and you have this outcome. The only way mm -hmm. we can say that X cause Y is if you take away X, you know, Y doesn't happen. But like, mm -hmm. that's just not, when you talk yeah, about health disparities. How, yeah, and health inequities, yeah, that's, that's not how the world works. And, and I'll just say that, I mean, I, I want to shout out some colleagues who are really thinking a lot more broadly about this, Dr. Zinzi Bailey, um, who's doing some really powerful yes. work us to understand and articulate structural racism. Dr. Chandra Ford, who introduced critical race, uh, public health critical race praxis. We, the, two, the three of us actually did at SCR 2019, a whole um, a session on critical race theory, but beyond ra is race a cause, talking about how we have to move away from our very limiting kind of um, ideas and notions of causality and counterfactual to really think about it very differently and also think about these structures and systems that have perpetuated, you know, um, um, these, these inequities. And if we don't kind of think more complexly about that, we're not going to solve the problems. Right. So there's, and there's so there are countless others who are really beginning to try to think about the more complex ways in which these broader structural issues that are at, at the root in this country are in racism, um, you know, how those then, you know, how they cause health, how they cause health inequities, but then become those levers that we can pull to maybe begin to undo some of the harm that has been done. Yeah, great. Because actually, since we're talking about all of the downstream effects, and this is an mm -hmm. epidemiology podcast, I was wondering, 
and there's so many, I know it's a big <laughs> question, but like, if you could just give the listeners an idea of some of the health outcomes we're talking about that yeah, absolutely. Are, are directly tied to residential stri- segregation. Yeah, we've seen patterns, you know, um, um, uh, related to cardiovascular disease outcomes. That's my actually area of expertise. I do work with the Jackson Heart Study. And in that study, we've seen, you know, links between segregation and incident stroke. Um, incident um, cardiovascular disease, um, you know, seen it for um, outcomes related to maternal and child health and inequities, uh, mortality, COVID-19. COVID, yes. Yeah, like, you know, one, so in June of last year, uh, colleagues and I um, affiliated with the Urban Health Collaborative at Drexel released a brief called COVID in Context, Racism, Segregation, and Racial Inequities in Philadelphia, because we wanted to put the racial inequities in the context of segregation and and other structural factors that were driving the epidemic within our communities. But I mean, countless other life expectancy, um, you know, you name it, we're we're seeing it, which is again, why going back to that 2001 article by Dr. David Williams, fundamental driver of health inequities, because there are so many outcomes uh, that can be linked um, to it because of the exposures that you see. So for example, uh, incidences of intentional environmental racism in our communities, the um, over-policing and mass incarceration, the stressors that, you know, accompany that, uh, the lack of, you know, access to health, uh, quality health care, quality housing, you know, all, you know, all the things people need to live, good yeah. work, place to sleep, you know, good job to have, you know, enough food to eat. All those things are what we need to actually be healthy. And, you know, segregation has created these conditions in which we don't, you know, we're, we um, many communities don't have just the basic necessities to actually live, let alone thrive, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you see all of these kinds of uh, segregation kind of setting this groundwork where you have the segregation of people and then these harmful exposures uh, that are associated with those communities. And, so, and again, like I said, sometimes intentionally, mm-hmm. we communities have been targeted with you know pollutants communities have been targeted with over policing communities have been targeted and segregation sets the stage for that targeting to be able to happen right Right. and so again thinking about how all these things come together some of my early work and the work that i published was on this idea of cumulative biological risk the neighborhoods in which we live in create a cumulative effect that is seen across multiple physiological systems. And think about living in these kinds of neighborhoods, you know, over time, the chronic, you know, exposure to this, what that then does to the body, right? Absolutely. That can manifest in so many different outcomes. So I do think uh, thinking about neighborhood context, thinking about segregation, creating environments such that there's such a, a cumulative toll on the body that then leads to these health outcomes that we see. Um, and there's some very explicit and um, specific health outcomes because of certain exposures, but you know, it runs the gamut and we have the evidence for it that has been shown um, not only here in the United States, but work I've also done in other countries like Brazil, where we're also seeing some similar patterns as well. And no safety nets, right? No, no fallback. Exactly. When, when something does go wrong, you don't have the resources to, to, you know, take time off of work or to, you know, exactly. want to watch your kids. Uh, yeah. So much cumulative stress. Absolutely. And we, and again, I think that, you know, there's, and the last thing I'll say to go back to this idea of like, there are people that don't even understand, you know, the, the privilege they have to 
have to fight for clean water to not have, have to fight for decent housing. Like that's the other thing that frustrates me sometimes. Like <laughs> black communities and, you know, we've had to fight for every, just the basic necessities, right? When things are a given in certain communities, there's literally, it's been a fight for everything for, you know, housing, water, you know, clean air, all those things have been a fight. And it's like, so we have to fight to survive and fight, and fight for the basic necessities, right? Mm-hmm. So you can imagine the toll. But again, so, you know, to say we have fought, right? We have not stood idly by. It's been, you know, we the gains that we have gotten is because we put pressure on the systems, right. structures that, you know, um, and so despite, you know, um, you know, the harm that has been done by these racist systems and structures, you know, um, still I rise. You know, black. You know, we find ways and we make ways out of no way. And I think that's another thing that we. I don't want to always just talk about the harm, because black communities there's so much power, there's so much richness, there's so much um, beauty there, even despite the harm, despite systems, despite the structures. Um, and one of the most beautiful things I've, that has come out of the COVID pandemic um, time this time is that it's been communities who've shown up for one another to provide mutual aid, food, making sure that people got taken care of, making sure that people got vaccinated. Here in Philadelphia, it was the Black Doctors Consortium made, making sure that people had access to testing and vaccinations in our communities, right? So I'll, I want to temper, right? Like there's just definitely been this harm, but again, we find ways to make ways out of no ways to protect and to uplift our communities despite the decades and centuries of racism that we've experienced in this country. And that has been, and that's why I think that the solutions we need actually should come from people, should come from communities that have been most, because we've been doing, we've been making ways. Mm-hmm. And we we know what you know our communities need in order to thrive, so. It's interesting because I think that you know, one of the things that epidemiologists do or try to do at least is think about the public health intervention, right? The way that we can, the thing that we can articulate to address the health disparity or the health issue. And what strikes me about segregation, racial segregation generally, health disparities is that there have been decades of so-called policies aimed at addressing this year after year, try after try, they fall flat because they don't actually address the fundamental issues. Mm -hmm. And which are of course, things like racism. And I mean, even if you think about, I I often think about like the 1619 project and Mm -hmm. critical race theory, which cast history in a different way around slavery. And the fact that there are states literally trying to ban critical race theory right now well this is why right yeah it's 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 literally a way of explaining to people that this is this is this is in our hands that there there are reasons that racial segregation and disparities in in health by by residential makeup exist Mm -hmm. but people they're literally institutions and policies that are no different from what i can tell from redlining they are just Mm -hmm. modern day redlining Mm -hmm. what i mean it's 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 disheartening but it seems like there needs to be something greater to address it and from from your perspective sherelle it sounds like you believe it comes from those communities directly absolutely i think that's where the power but the power has always lined uh, you know lined 
you know, been there. That's, we, you know, it's those communities, you know, our communities have pushed, you know, um, and, and this is, you know, some of the solutions lie, right? And, and you know, again, that come, I think that also is, you know, part of, you know, my upbringing and the family that I come from, like, that's what we've believed that the, the really the power is in people um, and, and in communities. And, and when communities come together to push this country, this nation are um, to be better, you know, than what it is actually being in the moment, right? That's when we see the change. And, and I, I mean, honestly, I don't know about you, like, this has been a year. I mean, <laughs> These things have happened, but like if, if, if COVID and the state sanctioned violence that we've seen against Black Americans and, and, and other things, if that doesn't say, wait a minute, we got to do something different, I actually don't know what will, yeah. right? right? Like I wrote in, you know, the commentary that I wrote in epidemiology uh, called Silence is No Longer an Option to basically say, like, if we go past this time and just resume you know, business as usual, that say more about our, our, our humanity than it does, you know, than anything that if we allow these deaths from COVID, and if we allow the state station violent that has been made so visible in this moment to just kind of be like, ah, oh, that was a point and we just don't do things differently. We're in bad shape. <laughs> and yeah. it speaks to Absolutely. actually a lack of humanity um, on all of our parts, you know, that, not push for the kinds of policies that, again, would allow communities to just to thrive, right? That's, I mean, that's all we're asking. We just want to live, want to thrive. But that's the whole uh, yeah. insidious nature of, of, of hiding this history, right? Yeah. If you've got people walking around, I mean, the whole, what, look, not to get too political here, but like, why are people trying to buy, bury the 1619 project, the right, critical yeah. race theory? It's because once you open people's eyes to it, the general public's eyes to it, and people start realizing that they're in the place they are because of these things that happened. Um, yeah. I, I'm talking about people in privilege, like people in power yeah. Yeah. Uh, who can who can easily just think that they got there. I mean, this is a whole American dream myth, right? That like, mm-hmm. oh, I just got here because I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and, you right. know, I'm a self-made man. And like, you know, and just ignore the fact that they had equity build up over decades. Their parents had equity build up and that other yeah. communities were denied the equity. Um, yeah then once I, I truly believe once that is exposed and mm-hmm. everyone is made aware of it and educated about it, things change, right? Because mm-hmm. then all of a sudden you can't just sweep it under the table or mm-hmm. because you, uh, you know, and, but I agree with you. I think that that's why it has to come from the communities and the people living it. Cause you can't pull the veil over people who, who live through this stuff, right? right like exactly. you can't gas, you can gaslight them, but they know, they know what really happened and what went exactly. down because they just go yeah. to the railroad track and see it, you know, like you're saying. Um, so I think this is an awesome place for me to ask you the one final question <laughs> before we wrap this up. It's a tough question, but I think we're all leading to it. You know, what what can we do? I mean, Gassan asked about intervention, public health interventions. Yeah. Um, obviously, understanding the history is the first thing, but I, mm-hmm. I am aware of the history. I read a lot about mm-hmm. it, and I still don't know what can we do to reverse that? What can mm-hmm. we do to move in and change things to erase some yeah. of that? Yeah, no, I think it, it, it again, I think it's a, a number of things. I think we have to be in this moment engaged citizens, right? So Again, this is all hands on deck. This is um, 
this is as scientists, as, as just human beings, right? Like being more engaged with, you know, the, you know, what's going around, you know, what's happening around us to perpetuate these things, you know? And so how do we get more engaged in what's happening locally? How do we get more engaged with what's happening in our state? How, what's, and what's happening now with, you know, the, I mean, what's happening with voting rights, for example, I think that's a public health issue because, yes. you know, the, I mean, and it's going to have, if we, if this pushes through, if, if what they're trying to do, you know, holds, now this will have generational impacts, right? And so um, what I'm saying is that as, as epidemiologists, as those of us who know that the fundamental drivers of disease are these kind of broader structural issues, we've got to become more engaged. We have to become more savvy. We have to you know, kind of understand and bring what we bring. We do have something to offer this moment, like the evidence, the science. Um, so um, what I did not mention is that during the COVID-19 pandemic, I brought together some scholars and colleagues from um, um, Harvard and UCLA and other places to kind of be a sounding board for the Poor People's Campaign as it was doing some advocacy around making sure that, you know, workers and, and those who've been most impacted by the pandemic were getting what they needed, right? The, our scholarship was helpful. Our framing of issues was helpful. The evidence that we were able to bring was helpful. So it doesn't mean we have to, you know, change what we're doing, but we can leverage our science and our evidence to actually, you know, um, um, really serve those who are doing some of the really powerful work on the ground. And that's possible, right? And, you know, so continuing to begin, you know, unravel and think through what's, you know, been some of the key drivers of segregation and the policies necessary to undo it thinking about along with community, what some of those solutions might look like. You know, all of that is, I think, within the realm of what we should be doing, especially in this moment. And one of the reasons I'm really excited about the new center at Drexel, the Ubuntu Center, which is racism, because we're gonna focus on documenting racism and its impacts, you know, locally, um, but also in other settings globally. Um, global movements, because we know, again, it comes from the powers and the people, and we need to be listening and aligning ourselves um, with those movements, because we ultimately think that that will then lead to population health equity, right? That unless we understand racism and unless we align ourselves with the movements addressing racism, then, you know, you know our efforts to achieve health, population health equity will, will you know, will, will come up short. But if we really grapple with racism and its and its manifestations, including segregation, if we align with the movements and the people and the communities who have been calling this out for decades, um, I think we can move the needle on population health equity. And that's what I'm excited about. Awesome. Thank you so much. That was great. I think that's a perfect place to end this great discussion. Um, thank you so much, Sherelle and Gassan, for joining us in this important conversation. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you, Gassan. It's been great. Awesome. Yeah, Thank you. So before we go, if you're an epidemiologist, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which was held virtually in June. And next year, the plan is for an in-person meeting here in Chicago. Membership also gets you an access to the SCR library, which has some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. Find out more at epiresearch.org. We really appreciate you listening and we'll be back with another episode soon.